Kate. And I'm Jamie. And this is Creeps and Coffee. A show where we talk about the creepiest crime cases around the world. So, let's grab some coffee. And have a chat. the morning to you. Well, well apparently we're in Ireland now. Well, not even, apparently yeah. we're in a Lucky Charms commercial now. Oh. Oh. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm assuming that wasn't a good accent then, if that's what you said. It was not. It was not. We have, mm. I think, one Irish listener. So I... God, I'm so yeah, sorry. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I do accents when I get that sounded Canadian. <laughs> I do, I accents. do accents when I get <laughs> nervous or uncomfortable. Not do I make well, you uncomfortable? but not you. That was just... an awkward silence. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. All right, how, how are you, Kate? <laughs> I'm I'm good. I've had a couple days off work, which has been very to weird. do more work. Yeah, to do my other work. No, it's it's been good. How about you? And it's only been like a week since you guys last heard from us. Yeah. So. I hope you. Because we had a Christmas. Special. I hope you enjoyed our Christmas special. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday season. It's like that weird in between week between Christmas and yeah. New Year's where you're like not sure what you're supposed to be doing. Mm hmm. And I'm really in the same boat. Yeah. I feel that. I I'm in that state of kind of shock because i had the realization 2022 is in a few days nope no don't like that 2022 sounds like a fake year i'm ancient that seems sketchy the world is gonna end i don't know i told one of my students that i was born in 1999 (laughs) and he did not believe me he was like you're not that old i was like wow Oh my god, okay. So Like, I didn't think we were old, old, but... The amount of roasting <laughs> that I've gotten from my kids about being old is, like, not... Not good. It's not funny. Oh. It's not funny. Not funny. See, maybe I do the accents because I get it from you. The accents. 100% what it is. God. Anyway, we hope you've all had a wonderful holiday season. The new year is coming. Hopefully... You know what? I'm not even going to say hopefully it's better because the last two times I've done that, <laughs> it's, been, it's worse. been so much worse. But, you know, it is what it is. Let's just hope we yeah. get through 2022. Well, we're finishing off the year with this final 2021 episode that Kaylin has been so eager to share with us. This is... If you guys remember from a couple episodes ago. This is my best way to end off the year. End it off on a strong note. So, if you guys listened to our episode on the smiley face killers, stupid. I'm so mad about it still. (laughs) I basically did a couple days worth of in-depth research on the wrong thing. Because we were supposed to be talking about the smiley face murder theory. And I did a bunch of research on the happy face killer. Fuck me. That's not different. <laughs> <laughs> like, so, K, 
Kate's gonna give us this debriefing now. So I um because yes. it, it was well researched and she deserves this. Thank you. So this is all a Kate episode. I'm kind of just here for reactions. I've done a total of one second of research and I've I looked at a paragraph. I so I don't know anything. I read a book. I watched a docu series. I did additional research. She's ready. <laughs> His daughter wrote a very fascinating piece on what it's like to grow up as like the child of a serial killer. Fascinating. Mm. Only to find out that he has nothing to do with the smiley face murder theory. But now I know a lot about this man and I would like to share yeah. it with you all if he will let me. Yeah, so do you <laughs> do you want to take it away? I've too? never wanted anything more. <laughs> to get this information out of my brain. Please, enlighten us. <laughs> All right, so the happy face killer, not to be confused with the smiley face murders, is otherwise known by his actual name, a man named Keith Hunter Jesperson, or as Jamie says... Jefferson. Yep. Jep. What did you say? Jesperson. Jesperson. There you go. That's what I said. Yep. Absolutely. That's for sure what you said. Um, so, Keith Hunter Jesperson was born on April 6th, 1955, in a place called Chilliwack in British Columbia, Canada. Oh, I know that. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar with that place. Small world. You know what? Can't Wait, so is this a Canadian killer? You'll find out. He's Canadian-American. <gasps> oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So... His father, his name was Les. He was an abusive alcoholic who worked as an inventor, in quotation marks. All right. So, real... <laughs> That's me on my resume. <laughs> real special guy, Les was. Um, his mother, Gladys, I feel really bad for her. She was really a product of, like, the early 1900s. She was horribly insecure... Um, she was the daughter of a pair of very religious, uptight Anglo-Canadians, um, who taught her basically to hate herself, hate her body, and that she was a sin. So, no one in the family was ever to see her in any state of undress, including Les, because that was, that was, uh, a sin. (laughs) Um, yet somehow... Despite all of this, Les and Gladys had five children together. <laughs> so, you know what? Good for her for still uh, still getting it on with some clothes on, you know? Mm. We, we love a woman who goes for what she wants. You, you go big or go home, I exactly. guess. <laughs> but it was also the 1950s, so can't say if all of it was uh, the healthiest of choices. But I digress. Yeah. So they had three boys and two girls. The most infamous of their children would obviously be Keith, the one we're talking about. And Keith Richards. No, not Keith. <laughs> oh my god. Sorry. <laughs> Unlike Keith Richards, who was talked about positively for the most part, uh, Keith Jesperson was a child that the whole family really firmly believed had something wrong with him from the get-go. <laughs> like, they just had an off feeling about Keith. Which is unfortunate, but accurate. Mm. An author for a book about the happy face killer was interviewing Keith 
and asked him, like, what's your earliest memory? And Keith recalled that his earliest memory was hitting his brother in the head with a rock. Um. So, nice. He, um, he put it down a slide. He put the rock on the slide so that it would, like, <laughs> oh my God. yeah. Um, so that's sure. Keith. Cool. And again, I like talking about the background of people like this because I think it gives us a nice insight on how they come up mm-hmm. and how their nature versus nurture really develops. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm going to explain parts of his childhood and his life in the next little bit, but I really want to stress that I'm not condoning his actions later on in life because he had a shitty childhood. That's not how mm-hmm. that works. We're allowed to acknowledge that someone had a bad experience without using that experience as an excuse. A lesson that I wish a few people in my life would learn. Um, <laughs> we, we feel you. We vibe. But let's talk about relationships with parents. Oh, so, no, thank yeah, you. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we look at Keith's relationship with Les. Basically awful. Like, there's no real way to, to go around it. He Bummer. was constantly beaten. You remember how oh, people geez. used to talk about the strap? Oh. Uh, you know what? I have never experienced it, but I know what we're talking about. My, this is a slight tangent, but still related. My grandparents owned a dairy farm. So mm. they had a bunch of cows all the time. So they had dairy. Uh-oh. They would slaughter some for beef. Like, it was... It was a thing. That's just what the family did. They had 10 kids, so it helped to have that much meat around. Um, But they would also, like, Mm. save the hide from the cows. So my dad and his nine siblings all went to a one-room school. So they all had the same teacher. Welcome to rural PEI. Yeah. But my grandfather provided the teacher with... A piece of cowhide, like a rawhide strap, <gasps> and said, "If any of my kids act up, feel free to hit them with this." Oh my god! That's don't <laughs> abuse your children. Don't hit your kids, That's guys. <laughs> but he, like, Dang. my grandfather was very much like a a farmer, like an old farm man in the fifties huh. and sixties. So that's, that's something that was more common. I don't condone it these days, but it was more common. But he was very mm. cautious about when he used it, and he made sure that the punishment was, like, fit. Mm. The punishment fit the crime, basically. Mm, okay. If you can <laughs> argue that. Uh, Les, on the other okay. hand, was just like, nah, I fucking hate this kid. Evil. So <laughs> he would beat Keith for his own and others' mistakes. He he openly said that even if he found out one of the other kids had done something that he'd beaten Keith for, he said, and I quote, he probably had it coming anyway. So really not a great guy, not a great situation. He would start drinking. Terrible person. Yeah, he would start drinking um, at like 10 o'clock in the morning and just keep it going. Mm. Uh, when it comes to the relationship with Gladys, surprisingly... Not a bad relationship, you would think, for what Keith would do in the future. You would think his uh, views on women would be different. But it was, like, a decent relationship. But, like, a lot of women in the 50s and 60s, she had more of a connection with her daughters because there was more typically female-gendered stuff that they would do together and that she could pass on. So 
It was hard. Mm. He, like, he had a decent relationship, but it wasn't really a relationship. Which is unfortunate, but tis what it is, I suppose. Um, I promise I'm... I'm listening. I'm just no. tired. So no. sorry to the folks who, who miss my voice as well. Yeah, I'm sorry to those that are like, why does Caitlin talk so much? <laughs> this is a listening episode. <laughs> I'm learning with you guys. Because I had to learn. <laughs> so much. Yeah, it's fun. Good. Fun times. Fantastic fun. What was not fun right. times was Keith's experience oh. at school. So Keith was a oh. big dude. Like huge his nickname okay. he had two like really common nicknames at school one was hulk and the other was <laughs> igor oh see that yeah oh. so not not great um but that was because he was huge and the kids made fun of him which i thought was very bold for these children to be picking on someone quite literally double their size who could literally like step on yeah <laughs> but they still made his like, life you sure you want to bully the hulk like, go ahead and try exactly but, I don't know, they still managed to make his life miserable. Um, mm. And that led to, like, a lot of internalized rage. Because he couldn't act out at school. Yeah, of course. Because there were these bullies, he would get in trouble with teachers. And he couldn't deal with it at home, because mm-hmm. he had the biggest bully of all at home. So, there were a lot of times, especially as he got into his teenage years, where he would just kind of, like, explode. And then yeah. hold it all in until he exploded again. So not not a healthy environment, which is unfortunate. Yeah. But again, does not condone his later actions. So at age mm-hmm. 12, Les got a job designing machinery for a company in, I think it's Sela, Sela, a place in Washington, which is not far from British Columbia. So they moved down there. Whole family packed up and moved. So when they, got, <laughs> when they got to Washington, Keith had access to his dad's machine tools, which is not great for a 12-year-old. That's um, nope. a little dangerous. But golly. <laughs> yeah. But Keith would often create pipe bombs and cannons uh. with those tools. And because Washington has a lot of like country and like fields and stuff he would test them out in these fields oh good because that makes it better right? of course it does still screams red flag to mm-hmm. me but oh right. well if you want to talk red flags oh, we can talk give about it, give it give it to me yeah so a relative of keith's it was never specified who we don't know if it was an uncle a cousin whoever a male relative mm-hmm. had served in the vietnam war and came back a very different person Obviously, there was a lot of... Yes. Um, But unfortunately, it was a situation very similar. I don't know if people know the story of Richard Ramirez and being shown graphic images by a cousin. Yeah. It's very similar in this case. There were no pictures shown, but this family member told Keith about what he did to these Vietnamese women, the torture. Which you should not do. No. First of all... To anyone, yeah. let alone, like, a child. Yeah, don't tell a child about it. But hormones were rife at this point. So Keith is, like, 13, 14 at this point. Keith discovered that he was quite aroused by these descriptions of the torture and oh. the assault. Not off to a great start. 
No. Ugh. Ooh, I got shivers. There you go. So, real quick, I want to talk about something called the McDonald Triad. So I think Jamie and I might have referenced this before, but it's basically a theory in forensic psych that kind of plots out how you can look at if a child is going to turn out to have conduct disorder or psychopathic behavior or potentially become a serial killer. So these sadistic Mm -hmm. sort of influences that happen early on. So the McDonald triad basically says that if they have two or three of these qualities in childhood, there's a good chance that they could develop something sadistic if matters are not addressed in childhood. So the three things... Got those red flags. Yes. (laughs) So the three things are arson, so setting fires, cruelty (laughs) cruelty to animals, and enuresis, so basically bedwetting after the age of five, after it's assumed normal. Right. So like Jamie said, arson, check. Not only would he set off these pipe bombs and these cannons, but he told people that he would like just set out of control fires to de-stress and to relax himself. Oh. Which it's not, I feel like that. Shouldn't. No. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I feel like. Maybe take a bubble bath or something. Exactly. (laughs) I don't know, bath bombs weren't a thing back then. Well, maybe go pet a cat or something. Ooh, not... Maybe we don't want to direct oh, him towards animals. I don't know then. I'm going to give a slight... Punch a hay bale. I'm going to give like... a slight trigger warning as I go into this. I'm not going to give any details because it's disgusting. Please don't. <laughs> but we can also check off the cruelty to animals on that triad. Hmm. Because he bragged about going into the like outskirts and killing animals with his 22 rifle. Mm. And in this situation, I was like, okay, but he's going into the outskirts and hunting. Like, I don't enjoy the thought of hunting and that stuff, but, like, maybe it's not abuse. But he didn't do it to, like, eat the animal. To, like, it wasn't hunting. He specifically said that he went out there with the purpose to inflict pain so he would aim for the eyes he would aim for the legs um he was really into aiming for anuses what uh, which i feel would take a lot of skill like that is okay no i know i'm not saying it's good (laughs) but i'm just saying like to get it unless you were right up never mind don't point at me like sorry (laughs) (laughs) Uh, anyway so didn't he did not nice things to animals that did not deserve it no animal deserves it yeah r.i.p to those little animals Mm -hmm. so as keith gets older he gets into high school he had a singular girlfriend in high school which is more people than i dated in high school so it's fine um but she and i don't mean to laugh at this but i do a little bit she dumped him after he developed a limp from a wrestling injury, and I love that she was just like, all your stuff. That's the final yeah. straw. Yeah, I can put up with the killing She's animals. She's like, ooh, jinkies, I'm out of here. <laughs> but a limp? No way. Anyway, high school, he was a standard D student, like, didn't do great, but he cheated his way to graduating. 
didn't plan on going to college, so he started working for Les's business as an equipment operator. Mm. And it would be this experience that would lead to him really realizing that he liked trucks and he liked like fixing long haul trucks and like mm. that sort of thing. At age 19, okay. so in 1974, he met a 17 year old named Rose Pernick and they married a year mm. later. So 1975, they got married. They moved into Uh a mobile home, like a mobile home park that Les and Keith built together with the company. So there was 150 Mm -hmm. lots. I think they moved into like lot 76, which comes in handy. Like they could, they could live pretty cheaply because they had built the land, right? Oh, I don't like where this is going though, because now all the pieces are starting to fit together. As they clear the land. Obviously, there's things that have to be done. You have to clear the stray animals, you have to clear the debris, and get the land prepped for building. Keith would say that his favorite part was clearing the stray animals. Yeah. Um, There it is. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. there was uh, some fire involved. There was a scythe involved. A what? A scythe like no yeah like the grim reaper oh what why the fuck do pe- i don't get it like they're these fluffy little innocent creatures why the f- like people who can actually torture animals like oh you nut job no nope. like you are fucked in the head mm-hmm. you're very passionate about animals yes and their safety but very abusive very just yeah. gross like just a shithead but anyway two years later they ran into some financial issues. They had to sell the mobile home. Good. Sorry. So they needed more money. So he left his dad's business and Keith became a semi-truck driver. Around this time, Keith and Rose would start their own family. So they had three children altogether. They had two daughters and a son. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. their marriage was not super happy. Wow. Shocker. Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> Keith blamed this on the fact that Rose apparently had a low libido and he needed to have sex every day <laughs> at the minimum which i think okay, is an Keith. addiction <laughs> <laughs> sit down keith relax exactly but because of this keith said he wasn't getting what he needed out of his marriage so he okay. sought sexual satisfaction elsewhere as is a common trope of long-haul truck drivers. And here we go. That, Strap in, folks. That would lead us to Portland, Oregon in January 1990. Hi, friends. We're just popping in to tell you about a fabulous new podcast that we've been listening to. If you're like us, you love hearing about cases that have a unique flair to them. Maybe they're unsolved or crimes committed by children. For husband and wife duo Teresa and Alan Clark, Their interest is rooted in true crime couples. Their new podcast, Clark After Dark, is a true crime show focused on telling the true stories behind some of the most murderous couples around. What I love about Clark After Dark is that they are really able to offer a lighthearted approach to cases that can be really intense. If you like hearing the facts behind true crime cases, along with a healthy dose of sarcastic humor, which if you're listening to us, you probably do, Clark After Dark is the show for you. Check out Clark After Dark on Anchor, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. A big thank you to Clark After Dark for sponsoring today's episode. And thank you to you guys for checking them out. Now, let's get back to the show. 
arms and feet in the vehicle, folks. Here we go. So this is where we see a lovely lady by the name of Tanya Bennett. So in January of Tanya. 1990, <laughs> sorry. Tanya was, was 23 years old. People described her as pleasant and charming. She always put a smile on people's faces, which is a very Ooh. ironic thing to say. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, but Tanya was also <laughs> developmentally disabled. So it wasn't a visible disability. There were no physical mm-hmm. characteristics to it, but she was a little bit slower, I would say. Um, okay. But it didn't, it didn't stop her from leading a full life. She just had that little bit of like a lack of mental development. Okay. So on January 21st of 1990, Tanya went to a bar called the B&I Tavern. Um, people there said she was there between 1 and 8 p.m. So like, hell yeah, good for her. She's living it up. Yeah. Uh, they said she was very happy. Some, some, mo- not samosas, <laughs> some mimosas. <laughs> I would love a samosa right now. Mm, me too. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> not the point. <laughs> it was said that Tanya was very happy that day. She was having a lot of fun. Uh, she made plans with the bartender, Carol. They were going to go dancing when Carol's shift ended, which I thought was really sweet. Oh, that's sweet. Um, she yeah. was flirting with some pool players. Said there were two blonde Ooh. men that were playing pool, and she was like, <laughs> Ooh. So she was having a good time. <laughs> I'm going to give a trigger warning going forward. Trigger. Um, I'm trigger. Just like the animal stuff, I'm not going to give details because that's, it's not stuff that needs. Not really. No, it's, it's. It's not the point. Exactly. It's very graphic. It's, we know that it's not good. It's unfortunate that it happened to these women. Yeah. And it's a disgusting event. So they don't need. Like, if you want to hear the, the gory details we're not really the podcast no. to cover that. You might be able to find one like that. Feel free to look it up. Or you should maybe, yeah, look it up yourself. I can recommend your some great sources. But. Yeah, go check out the dark web. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> but yeah, like Jamie said, we're not the podcast for that. I think these women deserve more respect than to be memorialized for the gore that happened to them. Um, yeah. They were real people with families and lives give them the respect yeah but if the mention of stuff like this makes you a little uncomfortable feel free to skip ahead it's totally okay no hard feelings if you stop listening we love you anyway we'll see you in a paranormal episode exactly but again for anyone who's worried i'm not going to give details just an overview of the situation so Flash forward to January 22nd, the day after Tanya was at the B&I Tavern. A college student was biking along a trail near the Columbia Gorge, which is like a hiking spot, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Never been. I don't know either. (laughs) Um, I've never been. But he found the body of a young woman who had been severely beaten and brutally assaulted Um, It was to the point where identification of the body was really difficult because her face had been beaten nearly beyond recognition. There was not a lot going on. It was to the point where they couldn't release pictures to the media because it was so severe. So what they did instead is they had sketch artists sort of piece together what they could and what they thought she would look like without the swelling, without the bruising... Um, to try and try and figure out who this person was. 
So once the sketch artist released a profile of her face, Loretta Bennett recognized it as her daughter, Tanya. Oh, that would suck. Her mother was obviously very upset because not only did she have to identify her via this sketch, but she had to be the one to go in and confirm that it was her. So she wasn't shielded from the reality of the situation. Oh yeah, that would suck. Which is really, really unfortunate. What was found with Tanya, her clothing had been bunched up. Um, she had been strangled and the rope was left around her neck. Um, and I'm only mentioning that because it's going to be relevant in the next couple of cases. Okay. And a really weird thing was that the front of her fly, like the fly of her pants, like where the zipper was, had been completely removed, like cut out. And it wasn't, okay. it wasn't left at the scene. So, oh. super weird. It was something that the police took note of. And they're like, okay, weird. We'll piece it together. So Tanya would really end up being the most significant, uh, I don't want to say most significant because they were all significant, the most discussed victim of uh, what we now know uh, was Jesperson. But not because it was like a breakthrough in the case or anything, but because of a woman named Laverne Pavlinak and her partner, John Sosnovsky. Basically, there's a lot of extra details that go into this, but I've condensed mm. it for time's sake and for the listener's sake so they don't have to hear me <laughs> right. drone on. Thank you. <laughs> but basically, Laverne was a 57-year-old grandmother. John was her 37-year-old very abusive partner. Oh. And Laverne basically called the police and said that Sosnovsky had coerced her into helping him kidnap, assault, and eventually murder Tanya Bennett, and then dump her body at the Columbia Gorge. So the police were like, what? Okay. Like, what what proof do you have that this is what happened? Because the weird thing about crimes is that so many people will confess to them that haven't done them. Just to get the credit? Yeah, what's up with that? No. Oh. But like, I feel like that's like, not why credit. Do you want yeah. <laughs> that's not credit that I would like to have, but whatever. So police asked her and she was she pulled out this front section of jeans. So she pulled out this cutout fly from a pair of jeans and she said, We took this from Tanya's pants. We know that the fly is missing. Oh. Here is the front section of her jeans. So the police were like, well, of course. So they brought Sosnovsky in for questioning, where mm-hmm. he fervently denied being involved at all, said that Laverne was psycho and lying and that he had nothing to do with it. Um, but despite this, he did fail uh, two polygraph tests. So the police were like, of course. Mm, I don't know. And there were clumps of, not clumps, like pieces of brown hair that were left near Tanya's body. Mm. And the police noticed that John's hair was also brown and a very similar length to the stuff that was found at the crime scene. So they hadn't tested, they hadn't tested the sample, but mm. they were like, okay, this is a good sign. 
Harry. Exactly. <laughs> Noted. Uh, Laverne was adamant that she could give all the details. She could tell the police everything. They even took her up to Columbia Gorge and asked her to point out where they dumped the body. She pointed out a very similar site, but she was off by about five meters. Oh, Laverne. So the police chalked this up to, okay, well, they dumped the body at night. She was still very close. It's a fort, like it's um, a wooded area that looks very similar, but she's still close. Mm-hmm. And she did say, they drove past and she was like, I think this is it. And then she was like, no, go back. It's here. And she did get to the right point. Mm. They basically had so much evidence from Laverne that they were like, okay, this is what happened. It is what it is. And then mm-hmm. after going back and forth and telling like 400 different stories about what happened, why it happened, how they found her, how they interacted with her, whether she was involved, whether she wasn't. Laverne basically said that she fabricated the entire thing. They had absolutely nothing to do with it. And the police didn't believe her. So they convicted them. I wouldn't either. But they convicted him. They convicted them and put them in jail. Because there was so much compelling evidence. If you're going to lie and say you did it, fine. Go to jail. Fucking exactly. Like, you've caused that much of a stir for the family. Because isn't it also, like, false testimony and stuff? Mm-hmm. Like, While all of this is happening, a very, very large man who... Hulk. <laughs> exactly. He stopped at a rest stop in Livingston, Montana, as he was delivering something as a long-haul trucker. And he Mm. took out a pen while he was in the bathroom stall, and he wrote a message on the wall. So this message said, and I quote, Mm -hmm. I killed Tanya Bennett January 21st, 1990, in Portland, Oregon. I beat her to death, raped her, and loved it. Yes, I'm sick, but I enjoy myself too. People took the blame, and I'm free. And then he signed the message with a little happy face. And this would become a big theme for Keith. Mm. So that's how the happy face killer started. So he got off scot-free, didn't get caught. Laverne and John were fighting for their freedom. John had no idea what was happening, but I will say, What ended up happening was Laverne was basically doing it to get out of the abuse. She wanted away from John, and she was going to do anything to get him put away, even if that meant getting herself put away, because he was abusing her so badly, which is very upsetting. But um, there's a lot of domestic violence outlets that don't involve uh, inciting yourself in murder. Um, True. Anyway, moving on. So... Because they had been, I guess, caught, charged for the murder, Jasperson Mm -hmm. kept living his life. But he really fantasized about repeating the crime for two years until he attacked again because he felt like he finally found the perfect person. So his second victim was in San Bernardino, California, a woman named Claudia who described herself as a throwaway woman which makes me sad to think. Um, But she was a sex worker. She found Jesperson fixing up something 
in his truck while he was at this like rest stop. They call women like this lot lizards because they like prowl on the truckers. Oh, and I think that's so okay. fucking weird. I, it, it gives me a weird vibe. Right? I don't like it. <laughs> she basically walked up to him and asked for a ride to Phoenix, Arizona. He obliged. She said he would give her a ride. Uh, and then mm-hmm. he basically tried to kiss her in the truck. She kind of put up a paywall. She didn't say no, but she said that she wouldn't do anything without pay. Fair enough. Right? She's, she's a woman who knows what she's after. Claudia was really adamant that she would do nothing sexual without being paid for it. Mm-hmm. And Keith was not happy that his sexual advances were met with this pay requirement. So he forced himself on her, assaulted her, and then threw her a $20 bill for the sex, which was rape. And she was scumbag. she was very offended by this. As she should well, exactly. be. So she threatened to call the police if he didn't give her a lot more money for what she had just endured. Yeah. And he didn't he didn't like the police being brought into the situation. So he bound her in the bed of his truck, assaulted her multiple times, and then he started playing something called the death game which is basically when you choke someone out to the point where they almost die and then you resuscitate them. Oh my god. So he did that to her three times, basically blacked out and then brought her back, blacked her out and brought her back. And then he did end up strangling her in the same way he did with Tanya, so with the rope around her neck. Gross. And then he dumped her body near Blythe, California. He's so gross. Mm-hmm. So a month after Claudia was found, a woman named Cynthia in Turlock, California. Uh, her corpse was found located off of Highway 99 in Turlock. Same thing, assaulted, pretty beat up. But and here's where I have a bone to pick with the police. So it doesn't say, but it can be assumed that Cynthia was a sex worker mm-hmm. or something of the sort. So the cops didn't link this with the other cases they dismissed it as a case of an overdose. They thought, oh, accidental overdose, case closed. It is what it is. No. I'm like, I feel, obviously I'm not a, I'm not a cop, but I feel like it's pretty obvious when there's an overdose and when there's an assault and a homicide. Yeah. I don't know. Mm. I think so. I think, (laughs) but whatever. So about a year later in... Salem, Oregon, a 26-year-old sex worker named Lori was discovered behind a store in Salem. Same thing, strangled, rope around her neck, assaulted. And what's really, like, it's pretty fucked up, but what's really fucked up about this is that Salem is where Rose and his kids were living. So he went home to visit his kids, made a pit stop to say hi to his family. God and then murdered this woman. Not long after, a woman who's only known as the Santanella Jane Doe was found in Santanella, California. Mm. And in a very similar way to Cynthia, she was dismissed as an accidental overdose and the police closed the case, didn't think anything of it, moved on. They've still not identified her body. There's been no closure, which 
infuriates me to no end, but it unfortunately also does not end there. So a little later on at a truck stop in Tampa, Florida, a woman named Susanna asked Jesperson for a ride north. Um, no. He, again, obliged because he's a piece of shit, so of course he's going to do that. So they stopped in Georgia. Like, a little after midnight, they stopped in Georgia, and then after they left Georgia, they pulled off to a rest stop at around 3 a.m. because they were going to sleep. Obviously, long-haul truckers mm -hmm. need rest. It's dangerous to drive a small car when you're tired, let alone a huge semi. So they agreed they were going to share the sleeper car because there was nowhere else to sleep. But Susanna adamantly said, no funny business, clothes stay on. And yeah. she woke up to Keith pressed up against her naked. Yeah. Um, he assaulted her. And then when she tried to go to sleep after the assault, he sort of had a second wind he was turned on Gross. he was turned on by what he had done to this woman so he went in for a second oh. assault and she fought back uh, he did not like that she fought back so he strangled her and dumped her body near Okaloosa County so she became number six not long after that a woman named Angela was staying at a hotel she was sitting in the lounge enjoying a drink by herself when Keith approached her, which is kind of a switch up in the MO. Yeah. Um, which is fucked up, but. So Angela, he discovered, was sort of, a, I guess, a free spirit. She was on the road a lot. She kind of hitchhiked all over the place, did her own thing. So she was kind of used to dealing with truckers and like getting these rides. So when Keith approached her at the lounge, he kind of wooed her. He invited her back to his hotel room. Um, mm. She agreed. They had, a, they had dinner together and Keith said they had oh. consensual sex that night. Actually, I have a bone to pick with that. I hate it when people say consensual sex. That's just sex. If it's not consensual, yeah. it's rape. <laughs> it's it's rape. Yeah. Just saying. There's no such thing as like, non-consensual sex. Yeah. Anyway, Keith said they had consensual sex. Uh, okay. And then, like the real gentleman he is, he left $30 and his contact information on the bedside table, and he left in the morning. This poor young woman did contact him not too long after. So she contacted Keith and asked him for a ride to Denver, Colorado, where she was going to go see her father. So he agreed, but after a couple stops, she called her dad to check if it was still okay. And there was a bit of a change of plans. He was busy, couldn't see her, whatever. So she oh. asked instead if he could take her to Indiana because she was going to go see an ex. So her, oh. her plan was she told Keith that she was pregnant and her oh. plan was to go and sleep with this estranged ex and tell him that the baby was hit. The trauma? Yeah. So Keith was a little taken aback by that. Didn't <laughs> like how comfortable Angela was with telling him this, like, scandalous stuff. And <laughs> when it came to her, like, not wanting to have sex with him in the truck, Keith did not take to it well. 
So he ended up doing what he does best, being a big old piece of shit. But he realized at this point that it was gonna be a different situation. He couldn't just dump her because she had spoken on the phone to her dad and her boyfriend and said that she was with this trucker this is his name, this is his truck, this is the route we're going. Yes, sir. Um, and because she was a bit of a free spirit and a little bit of a traveler, she had had a couple run-ins with police in general. So her mm-hmm. fingerprints were in the system. So they would be able to identify her. She had also used his credit card to make purchases at stops and stuff. So he knew that he couldn't do what he normally did. So... Mm-hmm. This is a little bit graphic. He basically waited till nighttime, tied her by the neck to the trailer, drove down the highway and dragged her body along the highway for 20 kilometers, which detached both of her arms, a shoulder and a thigh. Mm. Um, It had shattered her chest and there were basically pieces of her all over the highway. So there were no fingerprints. There were definitely no teeth, so Jesperson dragged what was left of the body and threw it down an embankment and left. Jesus. So, uh, fucked up. A little. So in 1994, Keith starts to get ballsy. He's a piece of shit. So at the Clark County Courthouse, a letter arrived claiming to be from the murderer of Tanya Bennett. Mm -hmm. So I will read you the letter. Okay. said, and I quote, I killed Miss Bennett January 20th, 1990, and left her one and a half miles east of Lateral Falls on the switchback. I used a half-inch soft nylon rope burnt on one end, frayed cut on the other, and tied it around her neck. Ew. Her teeth protruded from her mouth. Death was caused by my right fist, pushed into her throat until she quit moving. Threw her Walkman away. Her purse, two dollars. I threw it into the sandy river. I cut the buttons off her jeans. I had raped her before and after her death. I left her facing downhill and her jeans down by her ankles. I did not know any of them. They ignored this letter. Which, what what the fuck? So, a second letter. For what? Because they were like, ah. Couldn't be. Serial killers don't send letters. Let's go back to Jack the Ripper. Let's go back to the Zodiac Killer. <laughs> like, Yeah, hello? In April of 1994, the Oregonian newspaper was sent a different letter. This read, I would like to tell my story. I am a good person at times. I always wanted to be liked. I have been married and divorced with children. And it didn't go well with Rose, so. Yeah. Um, anyway, I have read your paper and enjoyed it a lot. I have always wanted to be noticed like Paul Harvey, front page, etc. On or around January 20th, 1990, I picked up Tanya Bennett and took her home. I raped her and beat her real bad. Her face was all broke up. Then I ended her life by pushing my fist into her throat. This turned me on. I got a high. Then panic set in. Where to put the body? I drove out to the Sandy River and threw her purse and Walkman away, and I drove the scenic road past the falls. I went back home and dragged her out to the car. I want to know that it was my crime, so I tied a half-inch soft white rope 
cut on one end and burned on the other around her neck. I drove her to switch back on the scenic road and one and a half miles east of Lateral Falls, dragged her downhill. Her pants were around her knees because I had cut her buttons off. They found her the next day. I wanted her to be found. I felt real bad and afraid that I would be caught, but a man and a woman got blamed for it. My conscience is getting to me now. She was my first, and I thought I would not do it again, but I was wrong. And then... Sounds like somebody wants attention. And then the police finally paid attention when a third letter arrived. Oh, <laughs> Like, Lord. for fuck's sake. So this letter was talking about the Santanella Jane Doe. So it mm-hmm. said, My last victim was a street person. It was raining in Corning, California. She was wet, and I offered a ride to Sacramento, California. I stopped at a rest area near Williams and head her. I put her body on or near a pile of rocks about 50 yards north of Highway 152, westbound, about 20 miles from Santanella. It was getting hard to trust my inner self. I kept arguing with my conscience. I had to get away from long-haul trucking. Victims are too easily found. So I quit and found a good job driving where I am in the public eye and out of harm's way. The truck has a bold name on the side, so it is easily recognized. I got away from what became easy. I do not want to kill again, and I want to protect my family from grief. I would tear it apart. I feel bad, but I will not turn myself in. I am not stupid. I do know what would happen to me if I did. In a lot of opinions, I should be killed, and I feel I deserve it. My responsibility is mine, and God will be my judge when I die. I am telling you this because I will be responsible for these crimes and no one else. It all started when I wondered what it would be like to kill someone, and I found out. What a nightmare it has been. I had sent a letter to Washington County Judge's criminal court taking responsibility to number one, the Bennett murder. But nothing has been in your paper. This freedom of press, you have the ball. I will be reading to find Mm -hmm. out. I used gloves and same paper as last letter. No prints. Look over your shoulder. I may be closer than you think. Uh. And each of these letters was signed by a little smiley face. Oh, not a smiley face. A happy face. Because the happy face and smiley Hence face the are name. different. <laughs> That's when the press really decided to call him the happy face killer. Mm-hmm. So there was one last murder. I'm almost done, I swear. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So Keith met a woman named Julie Winningham at a truck stop in Troutdale, Oregon in 1994. Mm -hmm. So when he was sending these letters. Um, Right. About a year later, 1995-ish, he ran into Julie again and they started talking, just chatting. And she, you know, I'm... Good for her. She started kind of working it to try and get some money. And he he said he knew. But I doubt it because he's a fucking idiot. But he agreed to go along with it and go along with her plans so that he could get, as he put it, a few good nights of sex. (sighs) Uh, He also, like, agreed to marry her. Okay. I don't know how desperate this man was. (laughs) But. Enough? Apparently. It changed when she. She basically got two DUI tickets. 
and needed to pay them off. So she demanded $2,000 and said that as his fiance, she had the right to his money and he needed to give her the money. Oh my God. He refused because that's a lot of money. And she retaliated by saying that if he didn't give her the money, she would have him charged with rape. Oh. Which. Uh, Lady, pick the wrong yeah, guy to yeah, say that to. Yeah, a little, a little too on the nose there, Julie. Uh, unfortunately. Yikes. He then assaulted her and really did do what she was accusing him of. And as he was doing that, he described his previous murders to her in graphic detail. Yuck. So basically telling her exactly who he was. He played the death game with her three to four times before he finally killed her. And then he tossed her body over a 15 foot embankment on Washington state side of the Columbia Gorge. So back to the same place where he left Tanya Bennett. Yeah. Her body was found on March 10th, 1995. So really not that long after reconnecting with him, which mm-hmm. is so sad. The issue with this case is that <laughs> she told her family that she was engaged to this person. So when the police questioned her family, they were like, yeah, well, she was spending a lot of time with her fucking fiancé. Nobody knows where he is. And they said, yeah, her fiancé's a dude named Keith Jesperson. Find him. Mm -hmm. They did a background check. No criminal background. The only thing they found was his divorce papers from Rose, um, Mm -hmm. which is smart on her part. Good thing she got out of there. Basically, long story short... They tracked him to New Mexico, and they arrested him at gunpoint on March 22nd, so 12 days after they found Julie's body. And he refused to answer any questions. Even after six hours straight of interrogation, he was refusing to say anything. So they took hair and blood samples, but they let him walk free. Yo! Like, So because he knew that he was about to get charged because he fucking did it. He drove to a local truck stop. He bought a package of Contac and 16 extra strength Tylenols. He also took Sudafed and Anacin that he already had in the truck, washed them all down with a bottle of mineral water and waited to die. He was like, no, I'm not going down for this. Not realizing that he was a six foot two, 240 pound man. It was not enough medication. It made him a little sick, (laughs) but it wasn't about to kill him. So he tried to do this twice. (laughs) Oh my God. Not to make light of this, but this dude wasn't even smart enough to kill himself. So (laughs) I don't know. Um, Bye, sir. (laughs) So he said he was going to kill himself. He was going to find a different way to do it. So he wrote a letter to his brother confessed to all eight murders, dropped it in the mailbox, and left, thinking like, nah. clearly, he did not go through with this. So yep. a couple hours later, at a restaurant payphone, he called Clark County Detention Center and confessed to the murder. The detectives were like, okay, well, obviously, this is not the first time this man has done this. Let's mm-hmm. see what else he's been up to. So... In jail, because he's a fucking idiot, he starts bragging about murdering Angela. And obviously the jailmates were like, hey, 
Shut um, up. This guy just admitted to murder of another woman. And stupid will be stupid. See, they they say like snitches get stitches, but also snitches get time off their prison sentences. So <laughs> <laughs> Oh. So people weren't hesitant to admit like, hey, you see that guy? He also I mean, go for it. He also sent a letter to the Washington Post claiming responsibility for the murder of Tanya, signed with a stupid little happy face. And after four years behind bars, thanks to this letter and being able to actually connect Jesperson to it, um, mm-hmm. Pavlinak and Sosnovsky were released from jail in 1995. So they spent four years behind Oh yeah, I forgot about yeah, that. Most people did. <laughs> so they spent four years behind bars <laughs> for falsely saying that they committed this crime. They discovered that Pavlinak had basically just cut out a random pair of jeans, like the fly from a random pair of jeans, and it didn't match up with the type of jeans that Tanya was wearing. So, like, I don't know. Fucked up. So he, he eventually did confess to all eight murders, but somehow did not get the death penalty. What the fuck is that? I'm sorry, what? I don't understand. He also just started talking shit. So once, and this happens a lot with like big serial killers, is they'll admit to Mm. a lot more. Like we talked about this earlier. They'll admit to so many more. He claimed up to 166 victims. No way. But then he recanted it because he was like, nah. Yeah. Couldn't be me. Like what what is with these people? I don't get it. But uh, well, good. I'm glad you don't. Um, he also, this is the fucked up. Well, it's all fucked up. He began um, a serial killer pen pal club. He and John Wayne Gacy, Richard Ramirez, Danny Rowling, and Angel Resendez were like sending each other letters and like sharing their stories, which is so fucking weird. Shut up. Unfortunately, he did not get the death sentence. But he is in the Oregon State Penitentiary, and his first parole hearing is scheduled for March 1st, 2063. So he can <laughs> suck a dick. He'll be over 100 years old if that happens. <laughs> He's not going to make no. good riddance. I thought you were going to say 2022, and I was like, uh-oh. No. But you know what? I feel comfortable with that. And that, my friends, is the disgusting story of a piece of shit named Keith... I'm so sorry to all of the families that his lives affected. Um, if you guys want more details, yeah. uh, the docu-series that I watched is um, it's on Netflix. It was the last two episodes of it. It's called Catching Killers. And it's, mm-hmm. it really focuses more on the Pavlinak and Sosnovsky side of things because it's from the detective's point of view. So they interviewed... Um, Detective Buckner, who was the lead detective on the case. Um, so mm-hmm. he was the one that really like heard Pavlinak's confession and did all of that stuff. So they, um, they interview him and hear what he has to say and how he sort of got swept up in Pavlinak and Sosnovsky's stories and all that sort of thing. So it's really, really fascinating to hear it directly from him. Um, he's yeah. a pretty cool guy. Yeah, there's also an article that I mentioned earlier about Keith's daughter, Melissa. 
Mm-hmm. So I'll finish off with this. So if you want to read the full article, it's called My Dad Was a Serial Killer. Pretty to the point. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, the quote from Melissa uh, said, On the other side of a plexiglass wall, he picked up the phone, and the first thing he said to me was, Missy, my best advice is that you change your last name. And that, to me, <laughs> was his confession that it was all true. I burst into tears because I was hoping he would say it wasn't. Yeah. Cool. So it the, the whole article is fantastic. It gives a really interesting perspective on what it's like not really growing up with your father around and then discovering the kind of monster he could really be. I would really love to hear more perspectives like that, but I don't know. I'm on the fence with wanting to interview children of serial killers because obviously it affects their families as well. Like, it's intense. We'd need, like, us, the guest star, and a therapist on the line. <laughs> like, because that's dark stuff to go We should have us and a therapist on the line at all times. I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's, there's lots of really cool information yeah. out there. Um, as you can tell from the hour of <laughs> me talking, I did a lot of research before discovering that the happy face signature on his letters and his confessions are not smiley faces, apparently. Stupid as shit. Indeed. But I, I got to get all the information out there, and I really hope you guys appreciate it. Because I did a lot I of mean, work. I mean, I did. <laughs> like, I wasn't very talkative because I'm exhausted, but I absorbed all of it, and now I'm going to have nightmares, so... Fantastic. Um, I'm sure that... Uh, it was effective. <laughs> I was talking to one of my friends the other day, and she was like, I realized that I can't really listen to your podcast at night because it makes me scared. Yeah, like, as it should. Like, good. <laughs> That's the point. I feel like a weight Well, has I'm been... ready to go watch something funny yeah. now, because, like... I feel like a weight has been lifted off my shoulders, and I'm like... <sighs> the happy face and the smiley faces can go to hell. You feel complete. I, I feel like I just witnessed a scary movie, and I, I'm anxious. <laughs> so sorry about that. No, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you for listening. Um, I'm sorry that there was a lot of <laughs> my voice, but deal with I'll, it. I'll make up for it sometime. Deal with it. We'll be back in two weeks. Twenty twenty two. Fuck me, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll be back in 2022. See y'all in the new year. Uh, a big thank you again to Clark After Dark for sponsoring today's episode. We love those guys. They have a new episode out, uh, which you should definitely go check out because it's super cool. Uh, we love you guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, um, we'll be back in the new year with uh, potentially some guests. some friends look out for that Mm -hmm. yeah happy new year stay safe happy don't do anything we wouldn't do which isn't much (laughs) we love you love you bye Coffee is produced and edited by us, 
Kate and Jame. Our theme music is Stuck in a Hole by Dated. For more information on where to find them, check out the link in our show notes. And to connect with us, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Creeps and Coffee. Um, side note, I'm going to cut this out too. But when I was writing pool, I can see where I scratched it up. When I was writing pool players, I was talking at the same time. So I combined the words mm-hmm. and I just wrote, flirting with some poop. <laughs> That's how my note taking is going. Um... <laughs> hey, me too. <laughs> oh, Haven't we funny. all flirted with some poop? Um, no. <laughs> I sure have. Please. Please continue. <laughs>